You are listening to Money on the Left, a monthly interdisciplinary podcast that reclaims money's public powers for imaginative intersectional politics. Proudly presented in partnership with Monthly Review Online. This month, Rob Hawks and Scott Ferguson are joined by Matthew Sable, Associate Professor of American Literature at Elmira College and Resident Scholar at the Center for Mark Twain Studies. In addition to writing and teaching in the field of literature and economics, Matt also produces and hosts the American Vandal podcast, which just kicked off its ninth series with a killer episode on necro-capitalism and Netflix's The House of Usher. You should check it out. But it's the recent conclusion of the American Vandal's magisterial eighth series, titled Criticism Limited, that occasions today's chat between Matt, Scott, and Rob. Over 16 episodes, Criticism Limited marshals a diversity of voices and close historical research to provide fresh perspective on the origins and trajectories of today's crises in, of, and across the humanities. From meditations on what Matt calls Ponzi austerity and the age of cultural abundance, to lurid tales of the trouncing of the neo-Aristotelian Chicago school critics by the neoliberal Chicago school economists, The series has much to offer teachers, researchers, organizers, and really anyone interested in building a more humane, collaborative, and democratic education system. To that end, we're grateful to Matt for making the thing, and also for sharing additional thoughts and notes on production with Rob and Scott in this episode of Money on the Left. Thank you to Mike Lewis for transcribing this conversation, to Robert Rush for the graphics, and to Nanin Kula for the theme tune. I'm Billy Sauce, and I edited this episode. If you're interested in supporting the work that we do at the Money on the Left Editorial Collective, please consider joining our Patreon, which is linked to in the show notes. Matt Sebald, welcome to Money on the Left. <laughs> it's very good to be here. Thank you for having me. So we've invited you onto the show this month because we were extremely impressed and very grateful for your work on the American Vandal podcast, and in particular, this season of the American Vandal podcast, which you're calling Criticism Limited. And this episode is largely dedicated to an exploration of this season, and we'll get into why it's so interesting and why it's uh, worthy of, of our discussion. But just to start us off, Perhaps you can introduce yourself to our listeners by talking a little bit about your background, your training, your interests, and maybe some of your um, academic and pedagogical work in uh, literary humanities on the one hand and uh, economics on the other. Yeah, absolutely. So my official title or titles is I am an associate professor of American literature and Mark Twain studies at Elmira College. Elmira College is home of the Center for Mark Twain Studies. And so my uh, service role, my primary service role at the college is as uh, the resident scholar at the Center for Mark Twain Studies, where American Vandal is is the Center for Mark Twain Studies podcast. We have a website. We have a a, a host of both online and in-person programming. Uh, we we welcome uh, about a dozen visiting fellows every year. So, uh, you know, I participate in all of that in various uh, in various ways. And so, a big part of my job revolves around the Center for Mark Twain Studies. Uh, I came to Twain Studies, however, 
I was trained in uh, 19th century American literature. That was my primary specialization as a graduate student at University of California, Irvine. But my methodological specialization that I was, you know, developing while I was there, uh, sometimes called literature and economics, sometimes called critical finance studies, cultural economy, economic humanities, uh, you know, back in the day called new economic criticism. <laughs> um, but I was there during the 2008 crisis and definitely part of a community of scholars who I think were really formed in literary studies by that event. Uh, and so... Uh, along with one of my classmates at UCI, uh, Michelle Chihara, uh, we uh, edited the first major companion to that subfield, uh, the Rutledge Companion to Literature and Economics. And that, uh, that interest in the history of political economy and the political economy of mass media has informed all of my scholarship, although not always in obvious ways. And it's really what brought me into Twain studies as well, is that I see Twain primarily as a political economist and a media theorist, as well as, of course, a novelist and humorist. Right? But what, what, what excited me about him was how invested he was, how informed he was about this period that's really important to the history of economic thought, right? the kind of neoclassical period, and then the, the Gilded Age globalization that's happening uh, concurrent with that. And so that's how I got to Twain Studies. And then once I, I was at the Center for Mark Twain Studies, you know, I, I always am trying to come back to how media and specifically literature intersects with finance and economics. So in some of your writing, you've, um, you've shown the ways that literary culture and economic thought uh, are actually indistinguishable. They're, they're mutually intertwined. Maybe you can, and then they become disentangled with a certain, uh, a certain, organization of the academy and a certain professionalization of these disciplines. But maybe you can talk to us a little bit about those, those analyses that you've offered. I think that that idea of disentanglement is, I believe, always arbitrary and superficial and is something that I'm kind of trying to resist in the kind of histories of economic thought that I have tried to to offer. And, and absolutely, I think what one of the reasons why I call myself a Keynesian, uh, even though most of the people who are, are identified as, as Keynesians are people who I would disagree with about most things, right? the reason I call myself a Keynesian is because what I see happening in John Maynard Keynes's work that I haven't found elsewhere in economic thought is an acknowledgement as Gertrude Stein says, that words are money and money are words, right? And that what Keynes recognizes that is that once you have organized finance, ideas are a currency that is in some ways indistinguishable from other currencies, or at least is in constant 
exchange with other currencies, right? Which means that that literature and other forms of cultural production, particularly when it has a mass audience, right, are can be as important as our material conditions. Uh, not, not aren't it isn't always the case, but it is at times the case, and that means that cultural products are as influential on economic behavior as any kind of rational optimization, any kind of uh, training, any kind of awareness of models or accounting or so on and so forth, right? That, that for the vast majority of us, our economic behavior is driven by the cultural products we, we consume. Answer your question to some extent, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the um, to to your point that it's a false disentanglement, right? I mean, it's a it's a performance. It's and and contradictions abound. I was I was starting to think of some um, recently. I realized that Cass Sunstein, the 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 nudge. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the nudge guy. Yeah. Right? He, he, he wrote a whole book called The World According to Star Wars, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I know that uh, f- from work that's done by uh, my friend and colleague Todd Barnes, that um, in finance, Shakespeare is everywhere. Yeah. All kinds of popular mm-hmm. Finance books will reference Shakespeare left and right. So, yeah, yeah the, the idea that literature and yeah. economics and finance are somehow um, somehow divided is yeah. is ridiculous. I'm rewatching uh, or, or watch actually watching the final season for the first time, but I'm planning to to rewatch uh, more of it because I'm planning to do a podcast with Anna Kornblum about this show that we both love called Billions. Um, on, on Showtime, and and it is filled with exactly that. Now, how much of this is coming out of the imagination of uh, of Koppelman and Levine, the, the showrunners? But but the way they present it, the uh, the floors of private equity and venture capital firm, firms are just filled with people who have these elaborate encyclopedic uh, memories for especially film, um, but also uh, continental philosophy and, uh, you know, Victorian literature and so on and so forth. Right. And, and I think there's, you know, although they probably take it to a kind of extreme, I think a lot of that is true. Right. That, you know, the. Even those people who characterize themselves as, you know, number crunchers right, are, are oftentimes deeply influenced by some sort of corpus, some t- sort of canon of culture. I'm a big vi- Billions fan, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that, that conversation. That sounds great. Um, and I think, I mean, this, this may be super obvious to everyone listening, but it might be worth just underlining just in case that you know Keynes was an important member of the Bloomsbury group which you know was most famous for being a group of of modern primarily modernist writers and artists yeah yeah and that a lot of where I sort of got interested in modernism which I I know uh, both of you sort of that that more of the specialization that you came out of. And, uh, you know, as a 19th century Americanist, I, I had only a sort of fringe introduction to modernism as uh, a graduate student. But I started 
working on Elliot specifically because he was friends with and oftentimes somewhat of a critic of Keynes right? and their relationship and the way that it, uh, it that it influenced both of them uh, and, and the way that they were, you know, it, Eliot definitely regarded Keynes as a cultural critic and Keynes regarded Eliot as an economic thinker. Uh, and that that relationship was really important for me to 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 sort of justify that what I was seeing with, in Keynes, I was not alone, right? That Virginia Woolf, T.S. Eliot, right? They, they all were very, very interested in what Keynes was doing, even though he was doing it out of, a, you know, a, the Cambridge Economics Department, which they saw very little other interest in. I think it's so interesting to think about that period as a time of, of literary experimentation, but also a kind of experimentalism mm-hmm. In, in economic thought, and, that, and, and that's kind of what Keynes was doing. But yeah, but but also to think of of money and economics itself as a kind of experimental mm-hmm. um, discipline, uh, which is you know we we're not we're not often taught to think of it that way. But but it, yeah, but it is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that there has been you know, and I I sometimes question, you know, how much of this is intentional and how much of it is just a matter of economics habituated ignorance to its own history. But there has been, I think, a a suppression of Keynes in the in economic departments, certainly. And even in, you know, even in the relatively rare heterodox economics departments, I feel as though they have a somewhat cautious relationship with Keynes because of the neoclassical synthesis and that, you know, and, and he's reduced oftentimes to that synthesis as opposed to read as an original thinker unto himself. And um, <laughs> you guys can see it. The listeners won't be able to. I have this you know, 32 volume collected canes on the shelf behind me. And it, it took me years to assemble that. Because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not available, right? It's not uh, still in, in production uh, because, you know, Keynes has been reduced essentially to the general theory, which is certainly wonderful. And there's lots of things in it that are, are well worth uh, considering. But his thought really is growing over the entire course of his career. And in some ways, you know, the... The work that follows from the general theory, uh, particularly his critiques of quantitative economics, critiques of Tinbergen, are as important to me as the general theory. And his characterization of the interwar period and economic consequences of the peace in particular, I mean, that has influenced the way that I see the world just as much as the general theory has. It's Um, hauntingly prescient. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and so readable, so accessible. I mean, if you, if you, if you are uh, somebody who, who feels a little bit intimidated by economic thought, start with economic consequences of the piece. Right? Okay. I mean, it reads like a work of modernist literature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Indulge me on this because I'm, you're, you two are the literary scholars. I'm the film and visual scholar, but I was 
when I when I've studied that text, I've always been struck by the character descriptions. I mean, the the mannerisms mm-hmm. and you know the ways that that heads of state hold themselves and how mm-hmm. President Wilson is regarded and disregarded by the European powers. I mean, it reads like a novel. Yeah, well, and I think you know another member of the Bloomsbury Group, who's uh, you know his name is escaping me at the moment. Maybe Rob can help me out. But we have this this moment of biography changing by virtue of uh, you know of Bloomsbury as well, right? Where the sort of satirical biography uh, is becoming, uh, you know, and and the sort of treatment of political figures not as necessarily icons as, and idols, but also as sort of characters and and flawed, tragic characters. I think Keynes is learning from that uh, in that book and 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 moving forward as well. Some of his obituaries for economists and for politicians, but I, I, you know, some of the you know he. Alfred Marshall was really his mentor, but his uh, obituary for Marshall is, uh, you know, is rich with irony as well as admiration. So let's pivot to your podcast. Yeah. I-, I think we should probably start by letting you set up where the podcast came from as such, right? Yeah. And then we can uh, work our way toward this particular season, mm-hmm. um, which we've yeah. asked you to come on the show and talk to us. Yeah. About. Oh, that's, yeah. So, I think this is a relatively common narrative, but in 2020, I started the podcast. I had done one episode of a podcast for what is called uh, America in the 19th Century. It's an anthology podcast that is crowdsourced through the uh, C-19, the Society for 19th Century Americanists, a great show. I highly recommend it. I just listened to an episode the other day that was just wonderful, uh, sort of tracing the history of a, uh, a ballad that was brought to America uh, by an enslaved person. Just a, a, an amazing, amazing show that's always finding ways to tell stories about uh, about 19th century American history and culture that don't get told in academic journals um, and through the, the other uh, sort of primary mediums that we have available to us as scholars. So I did an episode for that on Mark Twain and Elmira, and it was a great experience uh, that came out in December of 2019. And I took a step back. It took me months to prepare it. And I took a step back from that and was talking with the director of the Center for Mark Twain Studies. We had been talking for a while about the possibility of doing a podcast. And we just decided, oh, it's too much work. <laughs> it's, too, it's too much time. It's too much labor. We just can't, uh, you know, we can't take that on at the moment. And so we put it aside and then the pandemic came. And a big part of what we do at the center involves in-person programming. We have an annual symposium. We have three uh, lecture series in the fall, the summer, and the spring. Uh, we, you know, we depend upon that as a sort of justification for our for our funding. <laughs> and so, you know, we couldn't do any of it for the entirety of 2020 and portions of 2021. Uh, and so that you know, became a rationale for trying to shift 
some of that programming into some sort of digital space. And the podcast was born of that. And for the first year, it was really just throwing stuff against the wall, right? So me thinking up topics, coming up with people I wanted to converse with, um, trying to find sometimes a connection to Twain, sometimes only a very loose connection to Twain. But over time, I realized that what I really wanted to do was do thematically linked episodes, not necessarily narrative, um, but... Uh, you know, episodes that would develop some sort of ongoing conversation that would allow me to bring together scholars who were doing work that was related uh, to each other's work and to, to sort of have listeners exposed to a range of topics that, that they could draw the connections between. And that, uh, so basically the, the third through the seventh seasons are all of that type. And then with this most recent season, uh, Criticism Limited, I wanted to introduce some kind of narrative element right, where uh, the conversations would not be self-contained to the episode, but they would sort of be woven together and I would be trying to draw connections between them and sort of gently guide the audience towards a set of questions, if not necessarily a particular argument or theory, although there's a little bit of that going on, obviously, as well. Um, I, I have referred to this as a kind of stereograph, right, in the, uh, on, the, uh, on the model of the monograph, right, something that there's uh, a set of interrelated chapters, uh, kind of deep dive into some specific topics. Um, but in this case, involving a lot of voices, dozens of voices, uh, not just my own. I think it ended up being close to 50 voices. Now, the number of, of people I did special, you know, interviews specific to the series is closer to 30 or 35. But then I ended up incorporating a lot of sort of found audio, either stuff from earlier podcasts that I had done um, or, uh, you know, I wanted to use uh, the audio that I found from some of the Chicago school guys. And, right. Uh, and then you had the AI stuff. Oh, right. my God. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it ends up being close to 50 voices that appear at some point or another. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So we'll give you two minutes to summarize the whole. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that, I mean, the easiest way to that, I, you know, the only way really I've been able to think about it is just the sort of personal narrative approach, which I know is something that I sometimes critique within American Vandal, but very much this came about organically from just the experience of both thinking about what Twain's vision of the critic was and simultaneously witnessing the reception, particularly of John Guillory's book and the kind of glory that mainstream was media was taking in kind of defiling the profession of criticism in the early part of 2023. 
And then also recognizing that there was a whole, you know, a whole host of other texts that were in conversation to some extent with Guillory, that Guillory was self-consciously in conversation with at times. I mean, obviously, there was that wonderful chronicle back and forth between him and Bruce Robbins, for instance, and that it felt to me like there was something really fascinating happening, but that the mainstream media perception of it was very, very shallow and very, very limited. And I really wanted to have a bunch of conversations with people about how they were experiencing this moment, a moment that was really, you know, what we talk about in Criticism Limited is sort of twin crises or the possibility, the potential of twin crises. One, very much a material crisis within the university and particularly within the humanities. And the difficulty of reproducing our profession due to the, um, you know, what I call Ponzi austerity. And then the other potential crisis of our methods, right? Like what, what is the purpose of literary criticism? What is its object? Why is there uh, a series of what we have called um, method wars, canon wars, genre wars, right? Why is there this sense of the metaphor of conflict defining literary studies, whether rightly or wrongly? And so that that was where it all began. Um, and and I would say the, the other important piece here, and I think there's a lot of other things, as you said, going on in the series, but the other really important piece for me was the impression I had that literary criticism was being defined almost exclusively by academic print texts, that is, peer-reviewed journals and university press books. Not that those things aren't enormously important. They are. (laughs) But I, I felt as though my understanding of literary criticism at this particular moment is equally defined by what is often called para-academic criticism that exists in digital spaces and in multimedia spaces. And I really wanted to think about how does our understanding of what literary criticism is change when we think about what's happening at public books, LA Review of Books, right? Um, All of those digital hubs, some of which are very large and very influential, like the ones I just named, but also ones that are really niche. Um, You know, I founded one at the Center for Mark Twain Studies that is very specific to Twain Studies. Um, But we, you know, we talked to Ina Hiodoro about uh, her work on uh, brittle paper, which which revolves around African literature. And so there's there's all these things that are happening in digital spaces and then also podcasts and video essays and YouTube channels and so on and so forth that just wasn't being captured by conversations around Guillory's book. Uh, and that was maybe the uh, the perhaps somewhat self-interested <laughs> mission was to think about, okay, how do we, how, how does this change when we start thinking about the breadth of what, what Ryan Ruby called the, the golden age of popular criticism? When we were speaking informally before officially beginning, you brought up John Guillory's book, yeah. 
But for for I think most listeners, they're not gonna they won't even know who John yeah. Guillory is, let alone the fact that he had a book. Maybe if they Yeah. If yeah, right. if they read generally, maybe they might have heard of it or it might yeah. ring a bell, but maybe it'd be worth yeah. maybe it'd be worth retelling that, but but saying more about this book and Absolutely. how it yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so criticism limited, you know, I, I'd had this idea that uh, I wanted to do like you know a, a more mixed narrative and conversational format and but I didn't necessarily have a topic in mind for it um, but I was giving a talk in Washington DC early in the year and f- in preparation for that talk I'd been reading uh, a relatively obscure work by uh, by Mark Twain about Shakespeare and, and a, a work in which he's also somewhat uh, cynically describing the role of literary critics in his own time. And I happened to be preparing for this talk and then giving this talk at exactly the same time that uh, a sort of series of reviews were coming out in The New Yorker, in The Nation, in New York Review of Books, of this the same book, um, Professing Criticism by uh, John Guillory, a book that was getting this kind of mainstream press that very few academic books get anymore. And, uh, and, and I... I, I'm, a, I'm an admirer of John Guillory. I'm an admirer of cultural capital. Uh, and uh, I was reading uh, John Guillory's book as well at the time. And I felt as though the way it was being characterized in the, in the reviews was not necessarily inaccurate, but it was definitely selective. And There seemed to be a kind of pleasure that legacy media critics took in the suggestion that John Guillory, a, a, you know, renowned, you know, endowed chair at NYU, a kind of major voice in literary studies for over three decades, was offering up a kind of mea culpa about how literary criticism doesn't matter right? and has failed in some sort of way. And there are elements of that argument in certain sections of Guillory's book. And there are ways in which he, um, you know, he would like the profession to self-examine and change. Um, but as he himself says in, in Criticism Limited, he did not intend to write a kind of obituary for the profession, although it was sometimes interpreted that way. And certainly the headlines suggested that. There were things like the end of literary studies, the end of the English major, right? Is literary criticism dead? You know, those, those were the kinds of headlines. Um, and I read the book and and was uh, you know simultaneously reading Bruce, Bruce Robbins's politics and criticism uh, uh, the uh, Andy Hines's outli- outside literary studies which is about the history of black criticism and its interwovenness with the history of uh, US literary studies and so it for me, 
professing criticism, John Guillory's book, fit within this larger dialogue about the state of literary studies and the purpose of literary criticism, a dialogue that I thought really deserved uh, to, to, to have more attention and to be developed uh, sort of sub- self-consciously. Uh, I really wanted to hear what other people were thinking about this moment. And that's really where, where the, the, uh, the idea was generated. Um, obviously, it took on some, some other legs from there, and maybe we can talk, talk about that. It really is a, a, a wonderful series of, of, of these yeah, interwoven conversations, as, as you put it. Um, and yeah, I think you said already there are 50 or, around 50 voices there. There are 16 episodes, I think, it adds up to something like 24 or just over 24 hours as a, as a whole piece. Um, so there are so many things we, you know, we will, we could talk for 24 hours and, and not exhaust all the, <laughs> all the topics. But I think there are a few things that we're really interested in. Um, a few threads that maybe we, we can, we can draw on because, um, and perhaps where the conversation about literary studies, um, most obviously intersects with the, the economic, yeah. certain economic questions and then um, i suppose one of those is the is the, the kind of broader state of of higher education and and the role of things like ed tech and uh and you know various industrial disputes going on in um in u.s higher education that that echo some of the things we've seen in the last year of in in the uk as well so um yeah i wonder if, if you could say speak a bit to those kind of themes that that run yeah. throughout the season. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, there's a few ways to approach this. And, and, and like you said, I won't be able to summarize all of the sort of major claims and arguments um, that are made in, in relation to uh, finance and technology. Uh, and what, you know, I, I have referred to as a kind of extension of the corporate octopus of 19th century America, as uh, kind of the 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 mollusk of ed tech and private equity. But the I think that the two main points I would like to make that that I think are are supported by the conversations in the series. Um, the first is that what's happening in the humanities is coming for many other disciplines that have been traditionally housed in the university, at least at the United States. And, and although I have not studied the UK situation or the European situation, I have been told that it, it, it there, there's a lot of analogies that, that are not perfect necessarily, but reasonable. Um, and what I'm seeing is that the kind of MacGuffin of growth that has driven private equity and venture capital since the first tech bubble in the late nineties and early two thousands, it has seems to have run out of steam and, uh, and that the the sort of the process of amalgamation and capture uh, 
that has come for everything from, you know, banking to retail to healthcare and so on and so forth, um, is uh, has has kind of exploited those things, almost drained them of any potential future earnings, and that process of capture is now entering into education. And it's starting with uh, American public universities, but will, and, and I think is already moving towards higher education at large, and will eventually uh, move into secondary schools, primary schools, into sort of every corner of education, if, if it is allowed to. Uh, and that this is what I, what I have called Ponzi austerity is a method by which public funds are delegated for the purpose, the alleged purpose of education, but are very quickly siphoned into private enterprise. Um, and one of the, you know, the most insidious ways of doing this and, and perhaps the the most innovative one is through education technology firms and, and products. Um, and that's something that is accelerating, that it, it explains so many of the crises, including what's going on at West Virginia University, what's now happening at SUNY Fredonia. Uh, you know, if we look closely, the budget crises are often caused by delegation of resources to private enterprise that does not show any returns in terms of the attraction of students, the better outcomes for students, so on and so forth. Right. And so that, you know, underneath that ideology is at least initially is the idea that humanities disciplines in particular um, languages, literature, history, philosophy can be automated, right? That they are, that they belong to a set of sort of existing corpuses, which might be able to be fully automated and repeated without any additional labor or input or research, from faculty. Right? I think that's the uh, the rhetorical design. Uh, I don't think there's any merit to it, but it's a rhetorical design that it, the goal of which is to uh, de-skill and eventually eliminate labor to uh, not to reduce the costs of the institution, but to defray those costs to ed tech firms and then vicariously to private equity. And so that's one of the key arguments that I introduce early in the series um, and that develops over the course in various ways is that one of the things we have to take into account whenever we talk about the crisis of the humanities is that that crisis might originate from a private equity business model that is sucking the life out of so many industries and is now coming for education.
So this gets at um, what is what I take to be uh, one of the most important critical aspects of the whole framework of this podcast and this season, which is that you're <clears throat> you're taking up questions of literary criticism, you know, in a very expansive sense. Uh, on the one hand, and you know, questions of media, popular media, fine art, our 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 metabolizing of it, our making sense of it, our making sense of ourselves to ourselves, our pedagogy, our institutions of pedagogy, and and bringing that into conversation with these kinds of nuts and bolts uh, changes and contests in in political economy, uh, such that. Uh, you you end up posing the question over and over again. You know, to what extent are conflicts in that seem internal to the academy that might seem esoteric, uh, might seem um, <laughs> only the concern of certain kinds of academics and scholars, like the so-called method wars, which I'd like us to talk about. Um, to what extent are method wars conditioned by maybe a symptom of? Uh, larger uh, structures of austerity, privatization, and exploitation. So, I mean, I, I would just love to hear you talk about, in your own words, how that how that kind of conjuncture um, worked worked for you in in constructing this yeah. season. Well, I think the, the the short and easy answer to the question is that that's just how all of my critical approach to anything works, right? Is that I, I have I have a tendency to see everything to some extent through the lens of how it is being financialized um, and corporatized. Uh, and and I, I certainly would readily admit that I, you know, I might jump to those conclusions so, sometimes because I, I've just been habituated to them and I haven't been convinced that I'm wrong. <laughs> but I think that when it comes to the sort of, and, and I hope that people will listen to the series and recognize that this is not something that I am necessarily laying out uh, at a granular level within the series. I really want the series to be a sort of organic conversation between a whole bunch of scholars, not all of whom will see this the same way that I do. Um, but for me, if you know, the question that you, you asked about the method wars, I unfortunately think that the idea of a post critique literary studies, uh, a, a version of literary studies that is founded upon affection for culture, emotional response to culture, and sometimes is associated with a, a return to kind of canonical appreciation of great books. And I, I see that as very convenient for the mechanisms of private equity and Government, you know, capture of our institutions. Right? That critique is one of the things that I would say capitalists don't really want our students to learn or be familiar with. They don't really want it to be done. 
period. <laughs> and, and so when it comes to, you know, my personal understanding of the method wars, and this is not to say that those who are opposed to Jameson who have poked holes in the habits of literary critique are doing so in any sort of cynical way or who are, are self-consciously serving the interests of uh, oligarchy. That's, that's definitely not my claim. But I do think that the, their intentions are sometimes mis- appropriated, misinterpreted for the purposes of saying a kind of literary studies that aspires to show how the world works in the same ways that economics tries to show how the world works or sociology tries to show how the world works. And that, that we should not regard literature professors as having the kinds of qualifications or clarity that uh, that that gives them the right to make those kinds of claims that some of the social science disciplines and science disciplines do, uh, and I think that that is definitely the attitude towards the humanities on Wall Street is that this stuff doesn't really matter. The people who are coming out of humanities fields who claim to be able to show us something about how the world works, how can they claim that if they're just reading Dickens or Twain? <laughs> I think that sometimes the you know, sort of the desire to get away from politics and literature, the desire to get away from critique as a method, uh, certainly the desire to characterize all um, everybody in literary studies as a Marxist, right? These are all things that that serve the idea that we are part of an obsolescent and perhaps um, a, 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 a profession that lacks skills that are appropriate for this age. In connection with that, then, I think, Another another important thread of the whole series that um, I guess begins in certain respects with your interest in Twain again, but but is is a historical dimension and isn't just about the kind of present moment. But um, one of the one of the parts of the narrative we were especially interested in is the whole story of the Chicago fight, yeah. um, which. Um, uh, yeah, in, in, involves a particular kind of version of this story around mm-hmm. around the University of Chicago, but um, but reflects then in, in also and resonates in all sorts of interesting ways on the present moment and on on this yeah. this whole kind of relationship between economics and, and literature, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah, and that uh, so. Th- I wrote, um, and I, I don't think it's even now out yet, but. Uh, the there's a, a new edition of the Hopkins Guide to Critical and Cultural Theory that's coming out. And I wrote the chapter on the Chicago School of Economics. Uh, and so I had done that research a few years ago. Uh, and obviously, my interest in the Chicago School or awareness of the Chicago School of Economics goes back to my initial training in literature and economics. But I did not realize until I started working on this series, that there was a relationship between the emergence of the Chicago School of Economics in mid-century America and, you know, the kind of 
incredible influence that they have had internationally. Uh, in in many ways, the you know it is the the, the ideological center of neoliberalism that their origin story involves a feud with literary studies and, uh, and specifically with a group called the Chicago critics who are name, you know, one of the, the texts that I'm borrowing from that John Guillory is also borrowing from in his title uh, is called uh, criticism incorporated um, by uh, John Crow ransom a early 20th century literary critic and uh, reading that or rereading that essay, I was drawn to his description of the Chicago critics. And that is a, a set of literary studies professors at the university of Chicago as the first group who were trying to professionalize criticism. That is make literary studies, not just about literary history and the sort of the trivia of literary history, but make it about a force of interpretation uh, that would, it, I, I think inevitably lead it to have some sort of, uh, consequence in terms of a description of how we process information, right? how we understand the world, right? not just a kind of uh, literary studies as an archive of great works and an archive of the people and biographical associations with those works, but actually literary studies as a means of using those works to address greater problems of understanding. Um, and uh, those critics kind of fell out of favor in the middle of the 20th century, um, became relatively invisible, I think, in the way that we teach literary studies. And one of the reasons they did is that it, over the long haul, they lost the fight within their institutions with the social scientists and with particularly economics. Um, and that was a story that was completely new to me when I started working on this series and which I spend, you know, three episodes in the middle of the series, which I, what I call the hinge talking about, because I think there are a lot of lessons for us to take away from it. Uh, and, and how the sort of the institution level, department level fights sometimes have consequences that extend to the national, professional level, disciplinary level, even sort of global. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, that's the story that I sort of try to tell with the Chicago fight. Um, can you tell us a little bit more some of these juicy details? I mean, I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to have you totally repeat because they should. <laughs> listeners should just go listen. But I mean, somehow the Walgreens Corporation is involved in this. I had no idea, right? And the Mont Pelerin Society. Can you just tease us a little bit yeah. more? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and this, uh, you know, there there are th a few scholars who I should really. Uh, give give thanks to uh, John Guillory first, uh, also uh, Anna Dorothea Schneider, who has a, a wonderful book called Humanities at the Crossroads that really gives details about what was happening in literary studies at Chicago, less so about the 
um, you know, the economic side, but because she talks about the relationship of literary studies to the administration, we can start to see the story unfolding through her work in really interesting ways. And then Eddie Nika, uh, who is a, a, histor- a historian of the Chicago School and of neoliberalism. Um, and it, it was really looking at all those pieces together that I was able to see what I think um, is th- this really interesting kind of personal squabble in many cases between the president of University of Chicago, the humanities faculty and deans at University of Chicago, and then the economics department at and, and broader social sciences at University of Chicago. And one of the key moments, and Eddie is the one who really makes this argument, is, um, you know, Charles Walgreen, uh, the founder of the Walgreens uh, drugstore chain in the United States, uh, he becomes involved initially in a kind of red scare moment where he's accusing a University of Chicago uh, of sort of promoting communism, right? A very, very familiar uh, moment right now. There's almost no foundation for this claim. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't, uh, resonate with the courts or with the legislature very well, but he, he, you know, with the help of his friends in uh, at the in the Chicago press, he's able to create a kind of moral panic, panic temporarily, um, and he kind of does a mea culpa a few years later and donates some money to the university to promote. Um, you know, undergraduate education uh, and particularly founds a lecture series that is going to sort of bring big ideas to campus specifically for the benefit of, you know, introducing uh, undergraduates to a range of perspectives. Um, And one of the first Walgreens lectures is even the person that the president of the university who he had been most aggressively feuding with. And so there really was a mea culpa to this, but it it also sort of brought these funds in, and over the course of the coming decades, those funds actually got transferred to the business school, and were eventually the very uh, you know the, the the funds that were used to bring. Uh, major voices in the Chicago School of Economics back to campus and to build the infrastructure that would make it the powerhouse of that university and arguably the kind of academic powerhouse of the United States in the 1970s, 1980s, and beyond. and there, yeah, I, I don't, I, yeah, I don't want to give too many spoilers here because you really, I, I can't tell the story um, in brief in a way that will quite capture how insidious this design is, um, and you know, a kind of version of. of People like Milton Friedman, who many listeners will be f- familiar with, you you get a see you get a sense of you know, the kinds of institutional operators the Chicago School uh, uh, economists were, as well as political operators uh, and uh, international operators, right? Uh, It's it's an achievement of 
capture that I think becomes a model for so much of what neoliberals do well for the remainder of the 20th and into the 21st century. So one of, one of the, the moments in that strand, or, or that, that what, what did you call it, the pivot uh, yeah. in, the, in the series was, um, was the, the kind of pointing out of then the, the, the ridiculousness of the idea of, of then of, of a kind of marketplace of ideas version of events where, where, you know, if he's, if these ideas were just good ideas and if there was a marketplace of ideas where good ideas, na- you know, would just win naturally, mm-hmm. then why, why does all this sort of institutional um, kind of shenanigans uh, have to happen? And it's, it's because yeah, that's, that's how it, that's how it is happening. It's, it's, it's through kind of institutional mechanisms and markets uh are not the kind of natural phenomena we we yeah. are led to believe they are. They're they're yeah. created that way through institution institutional mechanisms, just as then the embedding of those ideas within universities was. Yeah, and that's uh, you know Eddie again makes this sort of wonderful point that the the sort of ideological foundations of the, Sco- the Chicago School is that you know we are all at least adequately adept at responding to market signals and therefore the creation of those signals through uh, you know unregulated marketplaces is the best way to you know create the most efficient and uh, healthiest and smartest uh, most intelligent designs right um, and yet, what we see in this sort of story of the Chicago fight is the Chicago economists being disappointed over and over again that both students and the broader public are not responding to the market signals in the way they think they should, right? And <laughs> that they have to sort of put their foot on the scale uh, over and over and over again. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it does very much put the lie to the idea that neoliberalism is about sort of free markets, right? A, a kind of, you know, old cliche, I think that mo- very few people still uh, believe in, right? But it's, uh, you know, we see that that ideology was discarded almost from the get-go. <laughs> so another thing that I really appreciate about this series is that you you do open up so many important questions and tensions and conflicts that are not resolved. Uh, One of them being, you know, the question of, is there a crisis in the humanities, right? And maybe yes, maybe no. Maybe the way it's being characterized is is misleading. Uh, Maybe it's elsewhere than you know, what the New York Times would like to imagine it is. Um, uh, And So I'd like I'd like to invite you to to tell our listeners a little bit about a little bit about that um, and and maybe with reference to uh, what one scholar Ryan Ruby has called the golden age of criticism, where he's arguing that because of our expanding media uh, digital network platforms, we're seeing a proliferation, a, a renaissance of criticism that um, betrays 
any any suggestion that there's some great decline in literature and literary thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think this is absolutely at this sort of center of the series is the idea of crises, maybe multifold crises, maybe fabricated or, or crises. Um, the one crisis that I think is absolutely real is the funding of the academic humanities. Right? Um, and we've already talked about that a little bit, so I won't belabor the issue. Um, you know, Chris Newfield has spent yeah, 30 years and four books tracking this, um, you know, and, and it is undoubtedly real. And it, it's definitely something that we need to have strategies for responding to. Um, and so that that's the crises that I, I think there's and I don't think there's really anybody in the series that would dispute that piece of it. Right. What they might dispute is what are the causes of it? And how is it related to other questions about um, about method, about object, about medium of publication, about what belongs in literary studies, about how literary studies distinguishes itself from cultural studies, film and media studies, so on and so forth. Those are those are where the disputes, I think, lie within the conversations in Criticism Limited. And, you know, I think that there, I, I don't have an answer to all of those questions by any means. That that's kind of the the whole purpose of the series. What for me then? Yes, again, setting aside, I, I don't want to act as though I am the amanuensis for this large group of very diverse scholars who are involved in Criticism Limited. But you know, f- for me. I think one of the the crises is the de-skilling of and defunding of research. And that one of the things that we are told sometimes explicitly, certainly implicitly, um, but uh, uh, I'm going to forget his name. Is it Akish Sadiq? who has been tracking the ways in which the, um, the funding, uh, a lot of the sort of Mellon and other uh, organizations have slowly but surely decreased their funding of humanities scholarship. Uh, and almost all of that money is going actually into administration or it's going into pedagogy or into other kinds of um you know, program building, uh, and that the, the, the resources available, the time and money available to humanities scholars to do specialized research is dwindling. And that is important, but what it doesn't mean, and this is where I think things get really confused, and we talk about this at some length in the series, is that there's not great research and great criticism being created. Okay? Uh, that in some ways, as, as Ryan says, this is a golden age of popular criticism because there are all these multimedia and digital venues for really interesting critical work. Oftentimes that critical work relies upon 
the specialized research that has been done until recently and continues to be done, but just in smaller and smaller portions from within the academy. Right. And so there's this, uh, you know, there's this sort of tension where I think there is an absolute crisis in the resources available to academic humanities scholars. And even this goes beyond, you know, the kind of scholars that you might expect the John Gillerys and Chris Newfields of the world who are working in R1 institutions who have traditionally had lots of access to sabbaticals, to, uh, you know, uh, to, to research funding, opportunity to go to archives, all that kind of stuff, who are oftentimes teaching a very small course load. You know, so that's one layer of scholars who are being defunded. And that's really important. But I think what we almost never talk about is the fact that there's this whole other set of a class or classes who are working at, um, you know, at uh, regional universities, at liberal arts colleges, at small private colleges, at community colleges, who not only are they not having the op opportunity to go write monographs for, you know, U Chicago or U SUNY Press or something like that, they're not having the opportunity to read those monographs, right? That their work is being, is, is so, uh, is so de-skilled and defunded and um, the labor intensification that they are suffering is so intense that they're not even able to keep up in their fields of specialization. Uh, and that I think is a major crisis that is, uh, you know, that endangers the reproduction of the discipline. Uh, it has the potential to, endanger the interests that students have in um, in the courses we teach, although I don't actually see that happening all that much, right? Um, but I think it has the potential long-term to contribute to that. It's a kind of, and this is, this is always, you know, what, what the argument I will always make is that administrations oftentimes forecast the crises that they aim to create. Right. And that what we are being told now is that students don't have the kind of interest in the humanities because the humanities are not giving them the kinds of knowledge and information and training that is necessary for the job market. Two things. Right. First, the market signals are not telling us that. Uh, the uh, you know people who get humanities degrees do very very well there is no indication that that is a disadvantage and also the students really aren't telling us that they enroll in humanities courses they show interest in humanities courses they don't necessarily show interest in humanities majors but my argument is that that is because those majors do not have resources right that they are being told uh, you know they are actually responding in some ways to that market signal and saying that uh, you know, I, I, I'm not going to major in a discipline that the university does not provide satisfactory support for. But is it even a, is it a market signal or is it just an institutional yeah. ideological signal? Right. Ab absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And this is, you know, this, this is, I think, what, you know, whenever I, Hear an administrator or a you know an Ed Beat reporter making some sort of uh, you know predict prediction or speculation or conjecture or interpretation. I always see that as an intention, 
right? Not as an objective assumption about what is actually happening, an object, uh, an objective description of what's happening, right? Is that there? There is absolutely a widespread desire to, uh, you know, to to reduce the number of humanities faculty and the resources devoted to humanities instruction. And the, you know, the rhetorical moves come before, uh, you know, the, 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 the rhetorical mo- moves are designed to rationalize the defunding that's already happening. Right? And so that's, that's sort of my interpretation. I think we've gotten sort of far away from the original question, but <laughs> that's, that for me is the crisis that maybe I am most worried about. And one of the things that I think the series captures that is um, kind of counterintuitive is that in part because the, uh, the sort of academic publishing arm of the humanities is no longer accessible to many people who would like to be part of it. They are creating criticism outside of it, right? And this is where we get to sort of Ryan Ruby's thesis, right? Is that there's very little, and I'll I'll even talk about myself, right? There is almost no incentive within my institution for me to publish an academic monograph and it will it will you i'm i work at a small liberal arts college the way that our research model is designed that's you know that's going to give me very little advantage here and so unless i thought it was going to do some other kind of good right it was going to do some uh, give me some other kind of advantage there is nothing driving me to spend all of that time and energy right much of which i would have to make room for myself because it's not built into my contract right uh and so instead right uh, Far, there's far more incentive within my current contract for me to m- make podcasts or to publish in the LA Review of Books or to write, uh, you know, journal articles or even to, to build out a blog or something like that. Those things are more valued by my institution. And, um, and so the, I think that, you know, that's one individualized example of a phenomena that comes in, in many, many different forms across the profession, but where, you know, people are seeking other venues for publication, for research, right. For promotion, promoting their own work for professionalization, because the traditional ones, uh, university presses, peer reviewed articles, um, conferencing, these things are, are increasingly cut off from them. And so what happens is we have this sort of flood of actually really good para-academic criticism, really interesting academic or pseudo-academic podcasts, right? Uh, you know, great sort of, uh, you know, material being created all across the web, much of it open access, right? um, much of it being created for no pay, right? which makes it easier to flood the market with it. Because, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and that gives us 
maybe the mistaken impression that the um, that the infrastructures of the academic humanities are alive and well and healthy, and to some degree that's true. But I worry that that golden age of popular criticism cannot continue without our reinvestment in the specialized research that historians, uh, you know, literary uh, studies researchers, um, you know, world language professors, so on and so forth, um, have traditionally done. And that informs pedagogy and that informs social reproduction and it's all interlinked. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is, I mean, I think the thing that administrator administrators generally don't understand at all. And I fear many faculty (coughs) don't even understand or have blinded themselves to is that having a healthy research life is absolutely imperative for being an effective instructor over the long term. Right now, you know, o- over short periods of time, it may not it may not harm you that much if you go a couple of years without sort of keeping up with the field or without having a research project or a writing project of your own. You know, on the, over the short term, you might not feel the immediate uh, harm of that in your in your classroom, but over the long term, you will. And the longer you go without it, the harder it is to weave it back in. Right. And I definitely have seen a variety of examples of that, right, where you have faculty who, for whatever reason, have let go of their professional development in terms of research and writing and publication. Um, maybe they've been kind of instructed to do so, right, to take on more service work. Right? Maybe it's just out of frustration, uh, you know, burnout, so on and so forth. But once it happens, it's so hard to get it back. And it may not harm the students over a short period of time, over three to five years, but, you know, professorial lives are long, right? And when we start to get to 10, 12, 15 years of negligence towards research and writing, then the harm in the classroom is very considerable. So, so that that really speaks to something that I I really wanted to ask, which I'm I'm going to cite you from the uh, I think it's in the middle of the three part finale. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mention the the convention sometimes taught in graduate programs is that your inclusion in a critical conversation must come at somebody else's expense. Criticism is competition for scarce resources, and also a number of times throughout the series, I think. Um, Kyla was on the Tompkins, the shush mm-hmm. is cited and the idea that method wars are really resource wars. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, 
in that article, she also said, sort of, let us imagine, um, let us imagine a world where you know our, our fields and our disciplines are properly resourced. So I, w- I wonder if we could ask, um, if what your thoughts are, what what would what would higher education, what would uh, specifically humanities, perhaps more even more specifically literary studies, look like if if it weren't starved of resources and looked like if it therefore wasn't a kind of a battle for a, a fight over scarce resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if money were no object, um, if uh, it, you know what would what would the kind of opposite of a Ponzi austerity be? Mm-hmm. Could we imagine a, a criticism unlimited? Yeah, well, that's a great question. I mean, it's it's in, it's the thing that keeps me up at night, perhaps the most. Right? Um, you know, there's a few things that I've been thinking about a lot over the last year that maybe you know offer some version of an answer to this question. Um, the one and and Chris Newfield brings up some something like this in our interview in Criticism Limited is that one of the things that the humanities lack or that literary studies in particular lacks is a kind of um, hub for research on the model that the social sciences and particularly economics has right that the the Bureau for Economic Research is a sort of extraordinary portal, setting aside its ideological assumptions, which are numerous and problematic, right? And we think of it just as a um, an institution that holds together a whole bunch of diverse fields, you know, uh, you know, types of uh, faculty, so on and so forth, right? It, it serves an extraordinary purpose, and the humanities doesn't have anything like that, right? That our, uh, you know, uh, the the journals and presses and everything that we publish through, there is no sort of aggregating place for what, here's the big ideas that are coming out of, academic humanities research. Here's just what's been published yesterday, right? <laughs> like we, we could really use something like that just to make it easier again for those people who feel like they're on the fringes, who feel like they're having trouble keeping up, making time for any kind of professionalization, just to be able to say, here's a place I kind of trust that I feel is going to give me a wide range of relevant resources and is going to make it easy for me to consume them to some degree. Even if it's not in their entirety, I'll be able to see an abstract. I'll be able to see uh, a kind of clearinghouse of similar uh, types of uh, publication. You know? Even Heterodox Economics has their own version. They have something called the Heterodox Economics Newsletter that I subscribe yeah. to and I can yeah. catch up on the latest. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's one thing that I think the, the humanities and, and this, you know, we could think about this being for some subset of humanities disciplines or for literary studies specifically or history specifically. But, you know, we haven't built out that infrastructure in part because we haven't found funding for that infrastructure. Right. Because it, it hasn't necessarily been treated as advantageous for other industries or private interests, right? Um, but that is that is definitely one thing that I think we lack and that we could, you know, significantly benefit from. 
The other thing that came up a few times in the series, which I generally agree with, is that we lack a culture of collaboration and collectivity, even though we often give lip service to those values. The actual products that we lionize and that we hold up almost always have a single name on the spine. Right. Uh, and that, uh, you know, that's one of the things I love about podcasting. <laughs> uh, and I think it's something that uh, that we're seeing maybe develop in, um, you know, in the digital humanities, uh, more of a culture of col- collaboration. Um, but I, I, I would like to see it happening across literary studies and across the humanities and maybe on an interdisciplinary level. Right. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Kim Stanley Robinson's novel Ministry for the Future, and you know, one of the problems that he cites over and over again is our difficulty conversing across specializations, across dif- disciplines, and that's going to have to happen for us to solve big problems like climate change. And I think the humanities have a lot to give to that kind of problem solving. But we have not developed a culture of collaboration, either within or across disciplines. Uh, and so that's, yeah, that's another thing that I, I think a healthy humanities, right, that isn't founded on the idea that, you, you know, the best way to, you know, to, to claim your spot in the profession is to, you know, disagree with somebody else right to to make an intervention right uh that uh, you know that's that's something that i would like to see change not that those interventions aren't important it's just that that maybe shouldn't be the only way we think about knowledge production well collaboration across disciplines is what money on the left is all about so yeah. so join us <laughs> <laughs> absolutely and that's yeah I think, you know, interdisciplinarity has, uh, you know, has sometimes a bad name because it can often be seen as a vehicle for further ostracizing or uh, de-skilling the humanities, right? It's the, that we, you know, that we are only given, um, we're only given some kind of uh, gravitas if we can be associated with medicine or with science or with economics or sociology, right? And, and I think that's why a lot of humanities faculty are resistant to interdisciplinary projects. Um, but hopefully there are some which will you know, break down that, uh, that reasonable uh, reticence. Yeah. So this leads to another question I wanted to ask you, like really nicely, um, about <clears throat> about process and about collaboration. And I'm I'm wondering from start to finish, right? So pre-production, production, phases of production, um, because it's clear that you'll uh, it, or it. it one can glean from your release patterns and from the structures, the kind of montage collage like structures of your podcast that you'll record a bunch of interviews and then you'll mm-hmm. cherry pick from them and edit through lines together to create episodes. But then, but then there's moments when um, it seems like, Oh no, 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 you've, 
you're speaking to how you've released a bunch of them and now you're speaking back to them. So I'm, <laughs> I'd really love to hear about yeah. what, what that process is like, and then just to pile it on just because we're running out of time. Um, I also am really curious about reception and feedback. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were talking before about yeah. the emails and the DMS and yeah. what, what do they look like? How do they, yeah. and how to, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's um, yeah, let's all, that's the easier one to address. Okay. And it's, it's the one that I've, I've also tried to been thinking about how, how to process because honestly, while the series was ongoing, I, I literally could not keep up, right? That there, were, there was so much stuff coming into my inbox that I really, you know, I, I tried to read most of it, at least, uh, you know, a little bit, but often I couldn't respond. Um, you know, I, I was still doing my day job, right? <laughs> like still teaching three classes. And, um, and, uh, and so, yeah, one of the things I've been trying to process since the series ended about three weeks ago, and I've actually been able to sort of go back and, um, and respond to at least some of those messages and read them in greater depth and start to think about like, what are the, um, some of the through lines that seem to be sort of consistent, the things that people were most interested in, the things that people were most likely to object to, um, you know, that, that's been, uh, you know, something that I've been thinking a lot about recently, but in so doing, I have also come to the realization that there was, there's something that I had really hoped for, and that is some sort of formal reception, right? I had really hoped for, whether I had admitted this or not, to myself even, was that this series, given the, uh, the clearly the number of people who were listening uh, and the way in which it was generating conversation within the profession, so, you know, I would get, you know, notes from friends that, you know, I, you know, I was at a conference and there were people talking about it. I, you know, I gave a lecture someplace. And when they mentioned that I'd been on the American Vandal, people responded to that, right? Like there, there, there clearly was a, a pretty ranging, um, consumption happening. But the reception I was getting was all informal. Right. All notes, all, you know, emails and DMs and, you know, people uh, certainly cir- circulating it on social media and stuff. Uh, n- no review, at least so far. Right. No sort of response. That can take some time. And it can. I'm not saying that it's impossible for it to happen, uh, you know, at this at this juncture. But I, I, had, I definitely had held out the, ho- the, the hope that something like that would manifest. And part of the reason is that it would give some legitimacy to podcasting as an academic medium, right? And that's one of the things that certainly we talk about within the series. I try to gesture towards at various points in the series is that I think this is a really important medium for academics, not just in the humanities, but throughout. Uh, I think it's, uh, I think that that importance has already manifested in the raw numbers of people who listen to academic podcasts. I'm, I'm guessing your data shows the same thing, right? That there, there, you know, there are far more people listening to my podcast than there are reading my Mark Twain annual articles, or even probably some of my LA review of books pieces, right? Like that there's, you know, there is, the audience is there, but, the mechanisms for translating 
that into an ongoing conversation, which is really what I want, have not been formalized. And that, so that, when when you ask about reception, that's the thing that comes up is like, and you know, I'm not the only one doing this. There's, you know, we talk about Remarkable Receptions, which is this amazing podcast series uh, by Howard Ramsey, High Theory. I, I mean, there's there's a whole host of academic podcasts who which deserve to have that kind of reception and engagement in those formal spaces. Um, and if, so far, at least, it hasn't really happened. And I really hope that that's something that the profession will ad- adapt to. Um, the first, so going back to the first question, right? The process, which is a, a harder one to answer in part because this is the first time I've made this kind of series. And there's definitely some things that will change and alter if I, when I try to do it again. Um, but the goal I set out for myself when I began that was going to be different from anything I had done before was that I was going to do all the interviews before I released the first episode. Um, and that I was, I started doing the interviews, I think in March, uh, I was doing them all through the summer. Uh, and then I was going back and re-listening to the raw audio, start to sort of see, you know, the, the, the things that were connecting between the various interviews. My questions were obviously developing, although I had a sort of a set of two or three sort of standard things that I wanted everybody to approach. And then some specific things to people, you know, around people's specializations and researches, it it developed over time, but I really wanted the, the narrative of the podcast to be uh, developed organically from the conversations. And I didn't think that could happen until I had done all the conversations. So it's just, I'm going to do all these interviews and then I'm going to see what comes out of them. Um, and I think that was a very fruitful process. It was also a process that led me to feel like I was seeing gaps all over the place. So when I made the first, you know, five or six episodes, really up to the Chicago fight, I just kept, you know, I knew a, a sort of general arc of where the series was going, but I was like, ah, oh, God, I'd really like to talk more about, for instance, AI. Right? I really, I, I need to talk to uh, to Annie McClanahan and to Ted Underwood, right? Uh, that there, and then you know when I sort of knew that I was headed towards uh, you know Jed Estes' book being at the center of the finale, I I I, I felt like I needed to to get more people involved in that conversation, and I hadn't asked that question because I didn't really know that was where the series was headed when I first did the interviews. And so I did do a a kind of second batch uh, later on that then was integrated into essentially the final five episodes, I think. Um, And so, yeah, that, that process will probably look a little different the next time I do it. I, I also, 16 episodes is a lot. <laughs> that was not how I imagined it at first. Um, and, you know, I, I hope maybe I'll be able to to think a little bit more concisely about topics uh, the next time and maybe have it be a seven or eight episode bundle or something like that. Um, but 
one thing I will say, and, and this may be a little bit, you know, shop talk, but the other thing that's happening, and I, I address this to some extent in the series, is over the course of preparing Criticism Limited, the technology for podcast was changing rapidly, right? And, you know, we, we get in a little bit in the series into the, you know, the voice um, generation and the you know, kind of the ways in which you can edit your uh, edit your audio without re-recording stuff. And that, you know, that's a, a definitely a boon for podcasters. We talked before we started recording, we talked about transcription and the improvements that are happening to transcription, which improve access. And there's a lot, um, you know, there's a lot to be thankful for there. And I hope it will continue to get better. But maybe the biggest one for, uh, you know, for me was the introduction of Descript as a, uh, as a, as a platform for editing uh, and just the the ability to edit the audio file through a um, through a a text editor instead of going into Audible, uh, I think dramatically uh, reduced the amount of time that I had to spend on sort of you know just the the nitty gritty editing of individual interviews. I mean that the one of the things that I do with vandal is i i try to really tighten up every interview uh and in the past that has meant going through every you know you know sort of cut by cut taking out every space every um every like or at least the ones that i decide are not helpful to the conversation descript basically does that automatically now and that happened within the last six months. So that, you know, the first interviews I were, was editing, we're talking about, you know, for every 15 minutes of audio, I'm spending an hour on it or something like that. Now, you know, for every 15 minutes of audio, I'm spending 30 minutes. Like, that's a big difference. <laughs> and and that's, that's all been made possible within the last year. So this, if if we have time, I, I, I don't, we've been talking for a while, but I I, I did just want to, yeah, this reminds me of something I did really want to ask. And it, so it kind of loops back to the question of modernism, to the question of experimentation, uh, experimentalism, that that almost was uh, where we started. Um, and to something Ryan Ruby said in your conversation, well, one of the parts of your conversation with him about uh, poetry as as kind of inherently experimenting with new media and poets always being at the, at the kind of forefront of of new media um, but I think I think he also says that kind of the criticism is having a kind of modernist moment um, so with those thoughts in mind that what you've just said about the podcast as it as a, and, and what you've done as a as a, as a in terms of, it, of podcast as an experimental medium as this as this as this project, as this uh, kind of wonderful experimentation with the podcast form, I've not heard anything like it. And I think, it, yeah, the way that the the voices are, are woven together and and, and people go, come back and, and and refer back to moments for it, um, yeah, it's a fascinating piece of work. As Scott's already kind of alluded to, as a kind of from a formal sense, but but thinking then about the podcast as a kind of experimental form of criticism. 
and then as crit- as criticism as 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 an experimental uh as a form of experimentalism as well which also speaks to some of the threads in the series about the relationship between creative writing and critical writing and and kind of uh, problematizing that distinction as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I remember that moment, uh, which Ryan's talking about writing context collapse and how that po writing that poem was part of his transition to sort of self-identifying as a critic. And I think the, the claim that he makes that, that poets are always on the cutting edge of new media is a powerful one. Although I think it is also, disproportionately formed by modernist poets. And I'm thinking about like Evan Kindley's work here. Modernist poets oftentimes share that kind of dual identity as poet and critic. And so we, we might argue that, that critics are also, uh, you know, part of that vanguard who are always sort of reaching for um, and engaging new media, you know, you know, maybe sometimes more successfully, uh, more progressively than others. Um, but, but yeah, I, I mean, f- for me, uh, the last few years has been definitely a kind of slow falling in love with podcasts as a medium, um, both one that I'd been consuming for a long time, but not really thinking about as anything other than kind of what I put on in the car or what I put on while I'm washing dishes or whatever, right? Not really thinking about them as, uh, as anything but kind of wallpaper, right? Um, and recognizing as I became a podcaster myself, both the, I think, inherent tendency for them to be consumed as such, but also the potential for them to fill spaces that are maybe lacking in our digital ecosystem and the the space that i would most say uh, or that i most associate with podcasting is just length right Uh, you know for if you know anything about web publication it's that our tolerance for long-form narrative and argumentation is incredibly low right and that the even even audiences who are attracted to, um, you know, more ambitious and more literary digital publication don't really like to read things that are longer than like 2,000 or 3,000 words, right? Uh, that reading on our phones, reading on our, uh, you know, reading on our, uh, in our browsers is just something that's harder to do. Uh, and as a result, as criticism has become more digital, as scholarship has become more digital, I think our tolerance for long form argumentation has reduced. Right? And, and I definitely still find that when I want to when I want to read something like a journal article, even though I'm oftentimes getting it through the web, I I either want to print it out or I want to, you know, put it on uh, my iPad in a way that more resembles reading a book or reading a magazine. Um, 
And so I think the, you know, just the technological era that we're going through is trending towards, not to mention the labor intensification that we talked about earlier, all those sorts of things. It's trending towards, you know, more editorial, more short form, right? Uh, and, uh, and the podcast, I think, is an alternative to that. Right. We're we're now almost two hours deep in this conversation. I don't know what it will look like when you, you know, when you publish it, probably an hour and a half or something like that. But people will listen, you know, and they'll, they'll listen all the way through. They'll, they might listen in 10 or 15 minute bursts. They might listen in their car on the way to work. But you have this opportunity to really dig deeper into a conversation, into subject matter, to, uh, you know, to to develop a long form uh, that I think is increasingly unavailable to us in other mediums. And so for me, maybe that's the biggest attraction of the podcast is that I, I kind of miss the, the long read <laughs> as, a, as a dominant uh, or at least a consistent genre of publication. I'd like you to talk a little bit about the soundtrack to your podcast, which um, hopefully we will we will have already um, incorporated little snippets of into our own interludes. Yeah. But um, it 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 plays a a, a kind of constitutive, uh, ongoing kind of aesthetic um, role, right? And then you, and you talk to to the musician responsible for yeah. uh, for the the score as it were, yeah. maybe you can talk to talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is definitely, I, I think an underappreciated turning point for the series was when Joe Locke gave permission to use his new album released early in 2023 as the soundtrack. Uh, and he basically gave me carte blanche to use it. However I wanted uh, as long as I was sort of protecting the, you know, the copyright, I never played a full song. You know, I, I always had it, you know, kind of coming in, coming out, I had various uh, layers of audio on top of it, things like that. But, uh, you know, to protect it from, um, you know, from plagiarism or from, I protect its copyright. And, uh, you know, but he, he gave me that permission and, it really, you know, provided this sort of aesthetic tone to the series that, I mean, I asked him for that album for a reason because I felt like it gave me a kind of palette that I wanted. But as I sort of spent more and more time with the music, I, I heard kind of things in it and uh, that I, I hadn't heard initially. And so... I do think, you know, to get back to that conversation about the podcast medium, I think the relationship between voice and music is one that podcasters should try to hold on to. Right? And uh, it's, it's obvious there, there are a lot of things that I don't want us to inherit from our radio predecessors, but that's one of the ones that I think we, I, I do. Right? And, and certainly talking with Joe, 
thinking about the backdrop to that album and the sort of story behind it and the kinds of emotional chorus of those songs was very useful to me in thinking about the the arcs that I wanted to create within each episode. Um, and, and oftentimes within Criticism Limited, the you know, the kind of narrative arc is not necessarily an explicit one. It's not me saying this is what I want you to, sometimes it is, but it's not always me saying this is what I want you to take from this conversation, from this conversation. So, and it's one that, you know, each listener is kind of intuiting uh, for him or herself. But the thing that binds them together is they all get those musical cues. And and those musical cues, I think, are really important. And I, I mean, I told <laughs> I told my dad recently it's going in every season so far of American Vandal we have had some kind of theme music that we have orchestrated uh with the um with the musician uh, Dan Reeder had this wonderful song that he gave us for the world's work. We had uh, the snarling yarns, uh, a a punk band called squirt gun for when we were doing our series on social media. So we've always had some kind of um, musical theme. It's going to be hard for me to do anything but jazz going forward (laughs) 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 because there was just something about how working with, with Joe's album affected my, you know, editing and mixing that I'm going to be longing for the the next time, I think. Yeah. Did you want to add something? Uh, I don't know. It was just something about jazz experimentation and, and a kind of call and response, you know, voices in conversation that I wondered if that was, had something to do with that link. Yeah, it wasn't. I mean, that, that was not something, you know, I, I, have been a lifelong uh, jazz listener. I, I actually uh, played jazz saxophone in an earlier phase of my life, uh, and so I, you know, I care a great deal about that music. My dad was a, a um, taught jazz history as an adjunct professor for decades. He was a uh, presenter uh, of jazz series at Purdue University. He's um, he was a jazz disc jockey, so it's been like just part of my life uh, ever since I was a little kid. But it wasn't until I was making this series that I realized, oh, that kind of that combination of really deep technical development, the kind of shedding and practicing that jazz musicians have to do in order to, you know, in order to perform combined with the spontaneity and the improvisation of the performance itself. Like that's what I want for podcasting. (laughs) I'm not saying that we always get there or that I always get there, but that's definitely what I want. Matt Sable, thank you so much for joining us on Money on the Left. It's been a real pleasure.